Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joy, joyful lips, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 63. And let's pray and ask God to bless what we're doing here. God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the opportunity that we have to open it together. Father, to be changed by it, to have our minds centered on Jesus Christ and our hearts turned and warmed to your truth. Father, you've given us yourself. What a blessing that is, Father. And you've blessed us through the foolishness of preaching to have your word reach us today. I pray that we be open to it, that you give us grace to hear it, grace to receive it, grace to grow. And God, smile upon what we do today uh, as your children. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I want us to start today by having you use your imagination just a bit. So I'm going to ask you a question. What is your happy place? What is your happy place? Now, obviously, you know, that's admittedly a a rather modern uh, reference, point of reference. What is your happy place? A a happy place, when we speak of our happy place, we're talking about really a, a perfect mix of circumstances and earthly delights, okay? So, for some, this is curling up on the couch by the fireplace with a warm mug of hot chocolate, and a book, maybe. For others, the happy place is relaxing on the beach, or paddling a canoe in the boundary waters, or maybe hiking in a state park, or maybe spending time in a wood shop, or in a shopping mall, or next to a bonfire. For some, their happy place is being with friends around a meal, or taking their kids to the Dairy Queen on a hot summer day. For some, A happy place is reaching, even if for a few moments, the state of being caught up on the dishes, the laundry, and the bills. For me, my happy place is a slow Saturday morning, sleeping in, sipping coffee, and feeling no obligation to do anything but rest. So what is your happy place? Can you you think of that? Some of you are like, I don't have any happy place. Others, you, I have all kinds of happy places. So, all right. This happy place, whatever it is for you, and whether you experience it or not, whatever it is for you, it's likely an experience where you, if you are in Christ, 
feel a certain prompting in your heart to offer praise to God. When you enjoy God's gifts, when you delight in the good, simple pleasures of life, you may feel moved to offer praise and thanksgiving to the giver of these gifts. There's a chorus to an Andrew Peterson song that goes like this. He says, but when you see the morning sun burning through a silver mist, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? And of course, our Christian answer is yes. Yes, I do. We experience the good gifts and the delights from God and we're moved to thank him. And we should worship God in these moments of blessing. We should worship when we are moved in our soul to worship. There are times when worship seems natural and easy. But of course we know that life does not allow us to remain perpetually in these so-called happy places. Rather, we are confronted with responsibilities and obligations that we must fulfill. And usually these are at the expense of many of life's delights. Many of us here have responsibilities to an employer. Many here today wake up every day to another full day of parenting. Laundry never stops. The kitchen sink fills up over and over again. The finances are tight and getting tighter. The job demands your full attention, the best hours of your day for a new work week. And then in the midst of the routine challenges of life, we are confronted with other things that can stretch us. It can be a bout of illness. It can be a strained relationship with a friend or a relative. It can be a big to-do list that you don't know how you're going to get through. It can be an unexpected medical bill or a costly home repair. It can be a sick child. A family member informs you that they have a terminal illness. And then there are the uncertainties of society, right? We all feel the vexation that comes when society celebrates evil and denigrates what is good. And we're seeing that right now. Every week, something new comes up, and it vexes our soul. And as believers, we know that that in the challenge of the moments of life like this, we should turn to the scriptures, and we do that, and we find our hope in the promises of God. And when life presses in on us, we rehearse these promises over and over, and we fix our mind on those scriptures which remind us of Christ's victory and remind us of Christ's care. For many of you, that's reflexive. You do that. Oftentimes, certain passages of Scripture become a mantra, something you say over and over again. We hang on to those things when life presses in. And make no mistake, this is absolutely what we must do. But all of us are human, and we know from experience that oftentimes, what we hang on to in our minds, what we hold on to, does not quickly resolve the weight that we feel. In other words, it's possible to grasp the promises of God, but at the same time feel and continue to feel the gravity of our circumstances. It is possible to have our minds fixed on truth and still feel the pressures of our responsibilities and the angst that comes when we are confronted with our fragility and our weakness. And importantly, we cannot simply just shut off the angst that we feel. 
think of the experience many of us have with certain anxieties, whether that's public speaking or anxieties about health or something like that. We can tell ourselves repeatedly, even forcefully, to stop it. There is no reason to be anxious, no reason to fear. But it's as if our gut brain doesn't seem to care, doesn't listen. We cannot simply shut off those feelings of anxiety or those fearful impulses like we turn off a light switch. And the scriptures are truth and we should rehearse them and we should center our minds on the scriptures. But the scriptures are not incantations to manipulate our physical processing of difficulty and stress. Let's say, you, for example, you receive a terminal cancer diagnosis. You might be unshaken in your belief that God is faithful and sovereign. But you wouldn't feel good about your situation. It's hard to feel safe. It's hard to feel anchored in the care of God in that situation, even though you wouldn't for a second doubt that he is there and he cares. So when life presses in on us, and although our mind is fixed on truth, we cannot seem to get our feelings to align, what are we to do? When we believe in our hearts that God is sovereign, and faithful, and immutable, and infinite in his love, and in his compassion for us. But our circumstances still seem to suck all of the wind out of our sails. What do we do? And I don't mean to focus inordinately on feelings, but we all know what it is like for life to take your breath away. To take all of your energy away and leaving you feel helpless, feeling helpless, lost even. In these moments, it's not as though your faith is shaken. You are not doubting the faithfulness of God or the truth of the scripture, but you feel weak. You don't feel as though you can keep going. In those situations, what do you do? What does obedience look like? And I'm going to suggest today, long introduction, I'm going to suggest today that our psalm gives us an answer. And here's the answer. It's in your bulletin. It's at the top in your little outline there. When life presses in on you, find solace in worship. When life presses in on you, find solace in worship. Of course, we rehearse the promises of God. Of course, we fix our mind on the truth of Christ's victory. But we do more than that. We worship. So let's look at our text, Psalm 63. You'll notice the heading of the psalm informs us that this is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. He was in a desert place. Now there's disagreement among scholars as to whether this is referring to the time in David's life when he fled from Saul in 1 Samuel, or if this is the time later in David's life when he was fleeing from Absalom in 2 Samuel. But in any case, David was fleeing for his life. King David, the most comfortable person in Israel, the man of happy places, as the anointed monarch, was displaced. His life was in danger. He was running. He was a fugitive. Now, our tendency, my tendency, I won't impose it on you, but my tendency as I reflect on David's situation is to jump too quickly to the end of David's story and say, 
Well, God was taking care of David, of course. And we fail to appreciate the psychological turmoil that David experienced as a fugitive. Of course, David had the promises of God before him, just like we do. But David, like us, experienced the same soul-sapping experiences of adversity. David could at the same time believe that God was his shepherd and feel the weight of his circumstances knowing that his life was in danger. So here we have David, the king, in the desert, on the run, and what does he do? He worships. Let's look at verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David begins his worship response to adversity by describing his relationship with God as one of pursuit. The word earnestly uh, here in the ESV, it's translated early in other places. It's less about expended effort and more about eager anticipation. So like a child who cannot wait to open a present. He can't think about anything else. You all have children. Many of you have children that are like that, right? They cannot focus on anything else. So David eagerly longs for the heart of God. And then David uses the metaphor of thirst and hunger to describe his desperation for God. When you are truly thirsty... When you are famished for lack of food, your focus narrows considerably. There's very little that you can profitably think about except satisfying that need. So David recognizes that in a time of being on the lamb, running, a fugitive, in a time of trouble, his greatest need is not for resolution of his circumstances. His greatest need is a need that he can feel. It is a hunger for God. To reach God's ear, to walk with God, to fellowship with God, to inhabit a space of communion with his God. That's his need, and he can feel it. God made us to desire him and to fellowship with him. From the beginning, God made man and woman in his own image, and he invited them to experience his being in a relationship that illustrates the fellowship of the persons of the Trinity. The fellowship of the members of the Trinity has been described in theology using the Greek term perichoresis. Now, don't be uh, 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 intimidated by the term. Go look it up. Own it. It's theology. It's yours. What is perichoresis? Perichoresis speaks of how the members of the Trinity enter into a deep and inscrutable union. It's a union of fellowship with each other. They enter deeply into the life of each other without blurring the distinction of their persons. And in a similar sort of way, God intended for human beings to enjoy a sort of perichoretic union with himself. Where we... As creatures, enjoy a deep communion with God, the creator, in a way that does not blur the creator-creature distinction. We experience God's very being 
and he indwells us. Now, where am I getting all of this? You should be asking that. Let me read for you John 17. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer. Okay, buckle up. Jesus has a lot to say in a short space here. Jesus said this as he's praying to God the Father. He says, for their sake, the elect's sake, I, Christ, consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There's the paracritic relationship between the Son and the Father. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's, he's stringing together these purpose clauses in the Greek. That they may be in us. That's the goal. And then there's a goal tacked onto that goal. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me. I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now, how many are like, whoa, I lost you there about three verses. Okay. It's God's revelation to you. It's yours. Go study it. It's complex. John 17, 20 through 23 deserves its own series of sermons. But for now, recognize that the conspiracy of the Godhead before the foundation of the world was to bless human beings with union and fellowship with himself. And when that fellowship was disrupted by humanity's sin in Eden, God acted to restore that desire, to restore that fellowship with him through the work of Christ. Here's one of the key points today. If you are in Christ today, you are capable of having a hunger for deep fellowship with God that numbs you to lesser things. You are capable of having a hunger that so consumes you, that so arrests your attention, that you're numb to that which is lesser. Be that your troubles, be that your blessings, God is your joy. God is your goal. Now, if you're like me, you're examining your heart right now and questioning whether you hunger for God in any way that matches the zeal of David in this psalm. What do you do? Well, take heart. Do know that this hunger that God put there for himself can be masked by all sorts of distractions. Okay, our phone, okay, notifications, push notifications. We can get any information that we want in a matter of seconds. We can have any joy, any delight that we want in a matter of seconds. The world is trying to tell you to get over your desire for God. It's lying to you. But what do you do? Well, Psalm 34, 8 says this. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You're not hungry? Taste and see. If we but taste God's goodness, we will want more. And God will give us more. Jeremiah 23, 13 says, You will seek me 
and find me if you seek me with all your heart. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, what if, like David, we used the stresses of life, the monotony of life, the challenges of life to be a trigger for that hunger? You feel squeezed, it triggers in you a hunger for God. You run to him. The challenges, the stresses of life remind us that we are hungry. They drive us to God. They numb us to lesser things. This hunger arrests our affections. It centers us on Christ as our our rock. And then we find ourselves on solid ground. We find our whole selves slowly turning into alignment with God's promises. And then we can rest. Rest. Rest is what we need. We can rest in mind, in spirit, and in body in the sovereign wisdom and the promises of God. And so those scriptures that we rehearse over and over and over again arrest our whole selves. And we believe with our mind, our spirit, our body. St. Augustine famously quipped, you, God, have made us for yourself. And, And our heart is restless until it rests in you. So in verse 1, David, who's running, who is a fugitive, what does he do? He remembers that he is hungry. Then in verses 2 through 4, David recognizes and responds to the steadfast love of God. Let's look at it. He says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Verses 2 through 4 form a little chiasm. The central point is in verse 3. God's steadfast love is better than life. And then that point is wrapped in verses 2 through 4, which describe David's responses. You have truth and response. Truth is wrapped by response. David responds to God's steadfast love. He looks and beholds God's glory in verse 2. And then in verse 4, he blesses God and lifts up his hands in worship. David's impulse to worship does spring from his theology. God is a God of loving kindness. And the the loving kindness of God, David says, is better than life. Now the term loving kindness is hugely important in the Old Testament. This is not just a flowery term. This is not a pithy Hallmark card way of talking about God. You all, know, you all go to Hallmark, right? And you're looking for, oh, that's a good one, right? Because it uses words in all the right way. And David isn't just grasping for some flowery term to describe God. No, he's actually invoking a term in the Hebrew that has a very thick meaning. Loving kindness or hesed in Hebrew speaks of God's initiative to choose a people for himself. To love on that people. And to enter into a covenant relationship with them. And against the backdrop of humanity's fallenness. Chesed further speaks of the initiative of God to restore the fellowship of human beings with the Godhead through the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, that's a thick term. For David, 
the loving kindness of God, the initiative of God to provide a way for humanity to, restore, uh, to return to a state of hungering and fellowshipping after God, in David's view, is better than all of the most blessed joys of life. It's better than all of the happy places rolled up into one. There's no greater privilege, no greater joy, no greater experience than to be reconciled with God and restored to fellowship with him. And that's what we celebrate every single week. And as David recognizes the steadfast love of God, it provokes a response. The word so in verse 2 speaks of the eager zeal of verse 1. With zeal, David beholds God. Whether in the desert or in the holy place, David sees God's power and glory. Now, what does it mean for David to see God's power and glory? It's a bit of an abstract sort of thing. But here, the, the scholar Derek Kidner is helpful. He says this, The psalmists knew the experience of seeing God with the inward eye in worship. But there is little doubt that they were led to look beyond this to an unmediated vision when they would be ransomed and awakened from death to behold God's face in righteousness. So for David to see God's power and glory in this life was to catch but a glimpse of the glory that God would one day reveal in himself. To recognize that he would stand before God in full righteousness to behold God's unmediated glory for all of eternity. David sees God. It's one half of the response. The other is, in verse 4, David's worship response to God's loving kindness is an eager commitment to bless God for the rest of his life. Lifting his hands in worship. Human beings lift their hands. Why do human beings lift their hands? In joy and exaltation. It's a posture of praise mixed with joy. So in verse 1, David remembers that he's hungry, that there's that hunger for God. In verses 2 through 4, David recognizes and he responds to God's loving kindness, that thick term, loving kindness. And then in verses 5 through 8, David retreats into the satisfying provisions of God. Look at verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David knows from experience that those who seek God will find him. And those who find him will be rewarded with the satisfying provisions of God. David continues with the food metaphor and he reminds us that God not only metaphorically satisfies our thirst and our hunger for him, but he blesses us with sumptuous provisions, 
with delights that accord with his very nature as God. And those provisions, understandably, move David to praise. In fact, David is so moved by the delights of God, he has so deeply tasted of God's goodness, that it becomes, as he describes here, his habit to meditate upon God. To make God the subject of his thoughts as a matter of reflex in even his idle moments. You know, what you do in your idle moments say a lot about you. What comes to your mind, what comes to your heart, what idly comes out of your mouth says a lot about where you are. David says, even in the night, I catch myself meditating on your goodness. Brothers and sisters, think of how keeping that is. Have your mind guarded by thoughts of your God. God is David's help, his shelter, his joy. The perfections of God and the satisfying provisions of God move David to sing. And isn't it so interesting that believers around the world, even when they are in the midst of difficult experiences, have this uncanny urge at times to sing? In verse 8, David sums up our, our proposition. That when life presses on you, find solace in worship. He clings to God in times of trouble and God upholds him. It's like this. It's like a child who falls and scrapes his knee. What does that child do? He runs to his father or his mother, right? And he falls into their loving embrace. He finds solace in his father's upholding arms. And that father and that son may, may look for a second at the son's knee, but the real comfort comes in that loving embrace. When the son retreats to his father's arms and finds the father's love to be strong and present, the pain of his knee doesn't really matter. It's a profound earthly illustration of how we run to God and we find solace in his embrace. And I rather think God delights in being worshipped this way. So in verse 1, David remembers that he is hungry for God and he seeks him eagerly. In verses 2 through 4, David recognizes and responds to the steadfast love of God. In verses 5 through 8, David retreats into the satisfying provisions of God. But David is not quite finished yet. In verses 9 and 10, David hints at his own vindication. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Those who are pursuing David will face judgment. And David finds comfort in that reality. But isn't this our impulse to start here? Not back in verse 1. Isn't it our impulse to come to God only with a desire for rest? Only with a desire for, for, for relief from life's challenges, for vindication from those who wish to harm us. Now I ask this not to say that such desires for rest and relief and vindication are wrong. Or that we are wrong to bring them as cares before God. We are to cast our cares, 
our burdens on God. We are to humble ourselves before God that he may lift us up. But I think David, in a very special way, reminds us in this psalm that God wants us. He wants our hearts. He wants our worship. He wants our love. He wants to satisfy us with himself. He wants us to rediscover over and over again that his loving kindness is indeed better than all the joys that this life can serve up. God is for us and he sees the challenges we experience. Jesus, our great high priest, knows every category of struggle that we face. While David here speaks of vindication from those who sought to destroy his life, there will be future resolution to the full range of challenges we face in this life. And then there's verse 11. David says, But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. In this context, it seems David is reflecting on his own future vindication as king, but could this be an allusion to the final victory and vindication of Jesus? Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God has highly exalted Christ, bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I believe our psalm here could be speaking Christologically here about Christ, and speaking of Christ's future victory, Christ's future vindication is ours, though. And his vindication is certain. We began today by reflecting on the blessings of being able to respond in worship to God's good gifts. And I hope you've all had a summer of God's blessings. And I hope that those blessings have moved you to praise him. What a blessing it is to be able to thank our creator God for the joys of life. For the little tastes of heaven on earth. For all of the happy places in life where, where we flourish. But let me ask you this. Is worship only for those moments of joy? Is it only for those moments where blessings seem to flood our way? And I think we'd all agree in principle that worship is for all moments. But our psalm today pushes the issue and it says that worship is especially for those moments when life presses in. There are all sorts of opportunities to fret. We all feel that the cares and anxieties of life can create a strange dissonance with respect to the promises of God that we confess. It's in these moments that worship will save us. As we reach out to God in worship, even if feebly, even with feeble hands, we raise our hands up to God in worship. Like that child who has fallen, who stumbles over to his father's embrace. God will reach back powerfully in love and in care. And he will satisfy us and reward us with himself.
When life presses in on you, find solace in worship. God, thank you for Psalm 63. Thank you for David. Thank you for his testimony of seeking you and finding you to be satisfied. God, we all love those happy places, those moments of joy. Father, those moments can sometimes feel so few and so far between. And the reality of our experience, Father, is that life is hard. And then sometimes life is very hard. And God, in these moments, you've called us to worship, to thirst and hunger after you, and you've promised to fill us up with yourself. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for your son. May we remember him. In Christ's name, amen.